The following podcast contains explicit language. I think the effect will probably, in some areas, give ISIS some more propaganda. He called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally. And if there are folks that shouldn't be in this country, they're going to be detained. And so, apologize for nothing here. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about Donald Trump, who can't quite quit the idea that we need to keep Muslims out of America. I'm Jamal Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. On Tuesday, the White House unveiled the latest iteration of its travel and refugee ban, its broad policy meant to keep refugees and visitors from a handful of majority Muslim countries out of the United States. The changes to the original order, which came just at the beginning of Trump's presidency, are substantial. Iraq is no longer on the list of restricted points of origin, and the administration also makes clear that legal permanent residents and current visa holders are not blocked from the new version. It still bars all refugees from entering the United States for the next 120 days, and it also lowers the cap for refugee admissions to 50,000, down from 110,000. But there's still a big problem on top of all of that. Like the original Muslim ban, this one doesn't do anything to protect Americans from actual threats. In fact, an analysis from the Department of Homeland Security found that few of any people from the countries on the ban list have ever been involved in terrorism once on American soil. Those that were, were radicalized years after arriving. So, what's the point? Why are we still doing this? For that, we have to look to the architects of the order, Stephen Miller and Stephen Bannon, key advisors of President Trump. Both hold Manichaean racial views— where Muslim migrants are a threat to American values, and where those values are defined explicitly as being white and, quote, Judeo-Christian. Both have been key figures articulating racist ideas within this White House, and you could say that they're part of what makes this White House a racist one. We're going to talk about the Muslim ban and, more broadly, racist ideas with our guest today, Ibram Kendi, an Africana Studies historian at the University of Florida and author of Stand from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. But first, we have a few tweets. By American and higher American are the principles at the core of my agenda, which is jobs, jobs, jobs. Thank you, at ExxonMobil. 122 vicious prisoners released by the Obama administration from Gitmo have returned to the battlefield. Just another terrible decision. Our wonderful new healthcare bill is now out for review and negotiation. Obamacare is a complete a total disaster is imploding fast. For eight years, Russia ran over President Obama, got stronger and stronger, picked off Crimea, and added missiles. Weak at Fox and Friends. Don't let the fake news tell you that there is big infighting in the Trump administration. We're getting along great and getting major things done. Despite what you hear in the press, 
healthcare is coming along great. We are talking to many groups, and it will end in a beautiful picture. Our guest today to talk about these racist ideas, their origins, and their place in history is Ibram Kendi, an Africana Studies historian at the University of Florida, I have to say go Gators, and author of Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Hi, Ibram. Welcome to Trumpcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. So I want to start with your book. I've read it, but I assume that many people in our audience have not. So could you just talk a little bit about the book and, and what you're trying to do with the work? Sure. So I, it's, a, it's a narrative history of racist ideas, literally from their origins to the present. And I think, you know, I, I sort of try to sort of answer many questions I think Americans are dealing with. So where did these racist ideas come from? Why are we living in a society where it's not post-racial? who and what is, is to blame. And I actually, I think my underlying finding was that ignorance and hate was actually not the roots of, of racist ideas, but people have long created racist ideas to justify existing racist policies, to normalize racial inequities. And they were so focused on justifying these policies because typically they benefited them. And, and so I, I bring this up and I invited you on to the show in the context of our current president, Donald Trump, whose administration prior before then, his campaign seemed to really rely on racist race, on articulating racist ideas. So one thing I wanted to ask you is how do you when you're thinking about the history of racist ideas and their articulation do you see trump as an aberration or uh, sort of a, a a throwback or do you see him as kind of a natural progression of sort of broader conversations and and and, and such happening in contemporary america that it's not an imposition from some uh racist past but very much a part of our present yeah so one of the one of the historical questions that I had to answer in, in writing this and stand from the beginning was this question that or really this debate we've been having over the last few years about whether things have been getting better as it relates to race or whether things have been getting worse. And of course, the better crowd has been stating, you know, we've had consistent sort of racial progress. And so what I actually found in, in, in researching stand from the beginning was that we've actually had a dual history, a history of racial progress and then a simultaneous progression of racism. And so if Barack Obama personifies and embodies racial progress, then, then Trump personifies and embodies the progression of racism. And typically, the progression of racism has followed racial progress. So when people broke down barriers, new and more sophisticated barriers were erected to hold them back. Right. And so in that sense, Trump almost seems predictable. Precisely. So the the kind of other context for all of this, the the, the news hook, as it were, um, was that earlier this week the administration released the newest iteration of its Muslim ban, and you know you talk to uh, people who study terrorism in the United States, and they say that there's this will have no effect on uh, the safety of Americans because there's not really any terrorism in the United States coming from these countries. Um, and so if, if the rationale is national security, it doesn't really make all that much sense. 
But it does seem that the architects of the of the policy, Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller, two key advisors to the president, that they have trafficked in the kind of racist ideas you describe in the book, and that more than anything might be influencing influencing sort of the direction of policy. Now, my question is: the book deals a lot with racist ideas in the context of African Americans for reasons that are, I think, should be obvious to anyone listening. But these policies, like the Muslim ban, aren't really targeted at black people because we're not refugees, um, or at least not in that sense, uh, but targeted at immigrants, at Muslims. And, and so how is your sort of narrative and, and view of racist ideas, how does that relate to this other threat in American history of nativism, of, of kind of disdain for groups like the above? Well, I think one of the... One of the revelations for me in studying many of these major producers of racist ideas is I found that, that many of these people not only trafficked in, in, in racist ideas, but many different forms of bigotry, uh, many different forms of human hierarchy they were sort of putting forth. And, and, and it was quite interesting to me. Uh, some of the leading as it relates to the Muslim ban, I, I, I don't. I, it seems to me that just as they try to create this sort of domestic idea that black people are criminals and 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 we need to have a law and order, and that these people are sort of incorrigible and there's no way, even if we you know increase unemployment rates, that that the crime would change, uh, and so Americans should be fearful of them. And we should have policies, you know, about having more cops. So, too, have they, in a way, uh, created this scenario that uh, Muslims are to be feared. Uh, and Muslims are incorrigible, and they are uh, want to sort of take away our freedom. And the only way that we could sort of stop their terrorism is through literally banning them. It's created these ideas that they're, that they're, that people are the problems as opposed to policies. And it, it causes us to, to think and be fearful and try to sort of wage campaigns against people as opposed to the policies that are actually making us unsafe. You know, what's so interesting about this this view of the world we're getting from the Trump administration is that it does, you know, it's very reminiscent of um, ideas that were in circulation at the turn of the last century, right? That um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the this you know one hundred percent Americanism that uh, then it was Catholics and Italians um, who were the who were the foreign threats bringing anarchism and and sort of all kinds of dangerous ideologies and there was like an entire intellectual movement that had been that was very mainstream and and it had the ear of um, you know presidents and of lawmakers that was uh, that was sort of centered on. This notion that the, the quote white race was in danger of extinction if we maintained our immigration policies. Yeah, and the irony, the historical irony, is that clearly, um, you know, Trump's notion of make America great again came in 2016, sort of came on the 100 year anniversary of a very famous book called The Passing of the Great Race, which sort of echoed the same type of idea. And the irony about that book, it was, it was written by a New York, a rich New Yorker by the name of Madison Grant. And a few decades later, 
somebody by the name of Adolf Hitler would classify the passing of the great race as his Bible. Well, that's chilling. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's funny because I think this is a clear historical connection. Uh, It's sort of, in my view, like in the, it's almost indisputable, these, these ties uh, between ages. But I think if we, if you say this to a lot of audiences, there'll be kind of a backlash. Like how dare you compare what the current president is saying to these white supremacists of the past and how dare you even make any kind of connection to uh, Hitler, who was like the the grand villain of Western civilization to a lot of people. So what, you know, I imagine you've been talking a lot about this over the past uh, couple mm-hmm. months. So what kind of, what kind of reaction have you, have you been getting? Have there's, has there been a resistance to sort of, uh, placing present day Americans and present day American, you know, politics and conversation in this longer history of the propagation of, of racist ideas? Well, I mean, there, there has uh, been resistance to, from those who do not want to recognize that their ideas about, about black people are racist because essentially I chronicle and stand from the beginning this long-standing three-way debate trying of people of Americans trying to explain why racial inequities and disparities exist in our society. And each position, so you had what I call the segregationist position, which principally blamed black inferiority and oftentimes stated that black people were genetically and permanently inferior. Then you had the anti-racist position that principally uh, blamed racial discrimination and simultaneously said the racial groups were equal. So, you know, there's no, black people are not in fear, so they could not be causing these inequities. And then you have this middle position, which I call assimilationist ideas, which was stating it's both. So it is the case that there are black inferiority, black inferiorities, but there's also the case that there's racial discrimination. And so black inferiorities are largely the result of the history, the history of oppression or the history in an inferior culture. And, and so, you know, these three positions are still popular in American society today. And even in the debate over race and policing, you had three positions. The Blue Lives Matter crowd that was principally blaming black people for the mass disparities in police shootings. The Black Lives Matter crowd that was principally blaming racial discrimination. And the All Lives Matter crowd blaming both. You know, I, I I actually had not thought to to place that dynamic within um, the framework you outlined, but it does fit very well. Um, so th- you'll forgive me if I end up stealing that for later work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot, um, and I, I sort of as soon as the president was elected, I sort of was musing about this publicly and to friends. It's just what the what the effect of all of this may be for the um, endurance of, of racist ideas in the country, um, and not just you know, not just uh, not just the stuff that I think a lot of people are familiar with, like arguments about black pathology or arguments about how you know Muslims cannot assimilate, but sort of a return of scientific racism, of sort of the kinds of much more explicit racism that I think a lot of people had thought had largely either gone underground or at least become so basically impolite that you can't express it in public. And I've been wondering myself if if we're going to see a resurgence of this stuff, if this if the 
current political atmosphere will make it once again acceptable. I was wondering if you, because in your book, you seem to basically describe a history where as broader racial conditions worsened, so like in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the currency of racist ideas increased as people sought to justify what was happening on the ground. And if if we accept that there is, if we're living in a period where racism is influencing public policy, do you think we'll sort of see the 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 intellectual set of that flare up again? That was a long way of asking what was probably a pretty straightforward question. But <laughs> no, I mean, I thank you. I mean, it's. I think we are clearly seeing the, on some level, the resurgence of segregationist ideas. Uh, specifically through the sort of likes of initially the Tea Party and then now, of course, Donald Trump. And, and when I say the resurgence, the resurgence in terms of, you know, within sort of popular uh, discourse. But I, I don't, I, I struggle with sort of classifying these ideas as a more explicit form of racism, just like I, I sort of struggle with saying that over the last, 50 years, sort of racism has become more covert. I think what's happened, and this is one of the sort of contributions that I wanted to make with with my book, is that we have, I think, and I know I did, because uh, I didn't realize this before writing this book, I think we've not been able to identify the progression of racist ideas and the progression of racist policies. And so if, if, if you're sort of trying to analyze racism from the spectacles of 1965 uh, in 1995, you're not going to be able to see it, right? And so I think, I think we, of course, have to recognize that racism has continuously progressed, and so we need to figure out what that progression looks like. And, and, and clearly, it's progressing now with the proliferation of, of segregationist ideas and, and that have really pulled from, of course, law and order ideas of the 60s and reframed them to this current moment that states that there's not a war on black lives, but there's a war on cops. I've been talking to Ibram Kendi, Africana Studies historian at the University of Florida and author of Stand from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Ibram, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. That is it for the show. Today's Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. If this podcast were Voltron, then Jacob Weisberg would form the head. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I am very, very excited. I've spoken to Paul Ryan, and we have scrapped his plan. And now we've done something that I'm very, very proud to put my name on. The Trump Healthcare Plan. The THP. THP. I like the way it sounds. As I said, all Americans will be covered. Every single American is going to receive a Trump First aid kit.
This is going to be the most tremendous first aid kit you've ever seen. Everything's in it. Everything you need. You can self-diagnose. You can cut yourself. We have you know sutures and scalpels. It'll be a family thing. You'll have a good time. The kids can be involved. You can take out mom's gallbladder. This is going to be the most fantastic things for families ever. And we're going to save so much money. And we're going to be closer as a country with the Trump first aid kit. Everything you need will be in there, and there'll be legal instructions, too, so you can actually litigate the disease that you got, which I think is tremendous.